I haven't taught for quite some time, but um, I have to say, and I, I told Pastor, I said, I've had a ball this last week just studying. And a lot of memories came back to me when I did teach Revelation in Sunday school a couple different times. And I just loved that then. And that, it is one of my very favorite books in the Bible. And I can remember years ago when I was working in Northwest Iowa or Northeast Iowa, and I had a dear friend who was a Catholic gal, and um, she was attending a book of Revelation study at the Catholic Church with a Catholic priest. And she would come to work, and, and this has been 40 years ago. And she would ask me questions, and she was scared to death hearing about the book of Revelation. She was, it just made her very scared. And I told Mary Jane, and I said, there's, there's nothing to be afraid of. Because if you're a child of the Lord, we, we, have, we don't have any fear when it comes to the book of Revelation. And so we had some really, really good conversations back then, and I remember many of those. And uh, she finally, after probably six months, she finally got kind of settled down a little bit in it and started enjoying it. And that was one of our main topics when we weren't working and on lunch breaks is we would discuss things in Revelation. So I, I told her and I said, I just appreciate, appreciate, I said, you're a priest, I said, because this is almost unheard of. Uh, to have that study being done the way I understand in a Catholic church. So it was, it was really, I had, a, I had a great time doing it 40 years ago. Uh, I've gone through the book quite a few times, and I, I'll be the first to admit, I sure don't know everything about that book, because every time you read God's word, something else comes to you, and you learn something else. So I've had a great time this week studying this again and going over it. And um, Pastor is uh, doing good. I talked to him today. He's, uh, he said he had quite a bit of pain this morning, but that's to be understood. I was amazed. He sent me a picture yesterday of him getting out of the vehicle and walking into the house, and I'm thinking, what? I couldn't do that. <laughs> so pray for him, okay? Pray for a speedy recovery, a perfect recovery, and he's, he's bound and determined to do what he did when that first knee was replaced, and he's given it his all. So he, I know he appreciates all your prayers, but he is doing, he's doing very well, doing very well. And so, and pray for Jill, too, because I, I know what she's going through. <laughs> so, okay, tonight we're going to do this... Uh, we're going to have a few questions, and um, we're only going to go through two verses of chapter two tonight. And we may get done five minutes early, but that's okay because we like to visit. We're Pentecostals. But tonight, are there any prayer requests? <clears throat> Anybody have a prayer request? Rebecca.
Okay. His name was David, you said? Okay, praise God. Praise God. Any other request? Marlene? That Barb? No, no, this is another sister. She's okay. a dog. Okay. And her knee has been bothering her. She had a lot of pain, so they had sent her home with pain medicine, and they told her she needed a knee replacement. She didn't have that. <laughs> okay. And pray for me. I have a lot of paperwork at work because I haven't figured out if I want to retire or keep working while they're transitioning my job. Okay. Yeah. I understand. Doing better. He had a flare up with gout, so they gave him some medicine for that. Is that John? Yeah. But his sugars are getting better. Okay. Okay, anybody? Yeah, Stan? Florine? Pray for you. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. What's her name? What is her name? Ashley. Okay. Okay. Anybody else? I'm sure glad God hears all these because I'm going to be real honest with you. My hearing is not the best. And I've even got hearing aids on, so I can't make them any better. <laughs> so, but God knows. God knows what all the requests are and what's going on. So, how's Joe doing? Good. 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 Great. Do we have any praise reports? I love hearing those. Any praise reports? God's good, isn't he? I'm glad you're here, too. <laughs> great. I'll tell you, if you struggle in a job, it makes that job a lot tougher to do and to do a good job. Been there and done that. And so it's, you can't enjoy it when you aren't in a good job situation. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just come to you tonight, Lord. And Lord, before we've even uttered any of these requests, you knew all about it. And I thank you for that, God, that you know each one of us inside out and what we're thinking. And so, God, as we lift up these to you, uh, we lift up Rebecca with this foot pain, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would touch her foot, that your healing power would touch her foot, that that pain would be gone in the name of Jesus. Father, you have not changed. You are the same yesterday, today, forever. You are our healer. You are the one that we can look to and trust and know, Lord, that truly you can touch that foot and it can, she can walk out of here tonight without one bit of pain. And we thank you in advance for that, Lord. We thank you for healing that foot. And Lord, we think too of of uh, the praise report that she gave. Father, we thank you for every praise report. 
and and Lord, they're so good to hear, and it just lifts our spirits up. So everyone that that has a, a report that comes for you, from you, Jesus, uh, we I, I thank you for that. I thank you, Lord. God, we lift up Marlene and her family, John and Connor, and that dog, Lord. I know that dogs can be part of a family, and I pray, Father, that uh, you would be with the family, and that. And Lord, you can even heal an animal. That's we. You're so great, and so I I pray for Marlene's situation, Lord. But God, uh, the good news from John is that his AC1 is down, his blood sugar is good. I I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for the progress that he's making in his medical field, Lord. And uh, as Marlene is thinking of of retiring. Help her to make a decision, God. Let her see, Father, uh, all the paperwork that has to be done that you would help her through each one of those uh, papers that has to be filled out if that's the route she's going to go. So I ask, God, that it would not seem like a huge burden to her, but that you would help her, Father, when she's on the computer. And uh, Lord, even help Connor to help her. And we thank you for that, Lord. And, and uh, the, there's, there's so much in this today, Lord, that in this retirement thing that they have to know that they go back years. And so give Marlene the insight and, the, and what she needs to know, Lord, to apply for this retirement if that is what you would want her to do. Speak to her clearly. She, she knows what to do. And God, we lift up Florine and her bad knee. And I pray, God, that uh, you would touch her. Lord, I know that, that uh, she is one that never complains. And she leans on you. She knows that you are her healer. So I ask, God, that you touch that knee in the name of Jesus and that that knee pain would be gone, that you would heal it in the name of Jesus. And as she walks out of this church tonight, she would realize that there is no pain in the name of Jesus. We claim that. We thank you for that, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And Father, we think of the foster daughter situation and this daughter that's on Facebook using language. God, Holy Spirit, draw her unto yourself. Father, we just ask God, that that language would stop, that she would see her need for you. Because we know, Lord, if she sees her need for you, all that other will be taken care of. So we lift that whole situation. You know every detail that's got to be worked on in that situation, Lord, and we just give it all to you. We thank you, God, for that. And Father, you pray for this uh, uh, widow that is struggling Lord, you know every situation in that whole thing, Lord, and, and we just give, Lord, all of these prayer requests tonight, uh, you know each and every one. You know all the details. You know all what's going on. So I lift them all to you in the name of Jesus. We thank you, God, for answering prayer. We thank you, Lord, for being with us. We thank you for your healing power. We trust you, God. We believe in you, Lord. 
And you are our great physician. You are our Savior. You are our Lord. Father, we can depend on you for everything that we are in need of. So we lift all these things up to you tonight in the name of Jesus. And we all said, Amen. I remember when I was years ago when I was going through this knee pain, it's not fun for your knees to be hurting. I mean, it's just not fun. And I, I can also share that this, this knee pain, I remember praying desperately, Lord, take this pain away. I can't handle this anymore. Well, you know, sometimes God uses doctors. Sometimes he uses different things. And sometimes he chooses to do miracles. Because I can assure you, he's, he's still a miracle-working God. So my belief is, those that have any pain tonight, when they walk down this aisle and out of this church, we're going to hear some hallelujahs. There's not going to be any more pain. It can happen, folks. We have to get back to where we know that the Holy Spirit can move mightily. And I get excited when I think back of some of the miracles I've seen. Many of you know years ago, in fact, it's going to be 20-some years ago, 1996, I went blind. And some of you have heard that story. I sit here today because Jesus did a miracle. So don't ever give up. When you need something in healing, don't ever give up. He's never changed. He has never changed. So we're going to start a little bit tonight with um, some questions. Because I said to Brian, what if I got 10, 15 minutes left after, you know, at 7 o'clock? I mean, he's, he can, he's always capable of adding this and this and this and this. And I said, I don't know if I can do that. Yes, Mom, you'll be just fine, you know. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's easy for you to say, you know. I said, you've got 30, 40 years of experience of that. I don't. Anyhow, uh, we're gonna, I've got six questions that I, we just kind of want to discuss a little bit. And the first one is this. What do you consider to be the most evil or sinful place on earth and why? What do you consider to be the most evil place on earth and why? We live in an evil world, don't we? And it's not getting any better. So is there some place that you would, you would consider to be the most sinful place on earth? Las Vegas, I've never been there, and I have no desire to ever go there, to be honest with you. Um, that's a very sinful place. It's a very worldly place. Okay, what did you say, Shirley? Yeah. Yeah, United States right now is a very sinful place. teaching of the children that's going on now, I, it's unbelievable. My, my thought on that was the United States. And I guess it's because we live right here, we're seeing what's going on. 
And as we get into tonight's lesson, we'll see that it started years and years ago, this sinful thing. Number two, in what ways could it be said that Satan lives in your city? Does Satan live in Mesa? Yeah. What else is going on in Mesa that upsets you? Anything? Or is this the perfect place to live? Yeah. You don't have to look too far, do you, to find some pretty ugly things going on. And it's not just here. It's yeah. What is the best way to deal with Christians? Ah, Stan. Sorry. We need to pray for our, I hate to bring politics up. <laughs> but we need to pray that the Republicans get out and vote. Yeah. And it's imperative that they get out and vote early. Because the Democrats are, I hear from many of them, they're going to get the Democrats out to do something. It's either sabotage the machines again. Yes, we do. Did you hear what Stan said? I know, like he said, you hate to get into politics, but folks, I'm telling you, this election is very, very, very important. Very important. So. Yep. I, I, um, we've already voted about a week ago already. <laughs> but pray about it. Get an earnest prayer about it, what God would have you do. And vote. Just vote the way God would want you to vote. And that's not too tough to know. Okay. Okay, good. Okay. The most sinful place in this country right now. Washington, D.C., with everything that's going on. Okay, did you hear what Tina said? The most sinful place that she feels is Washington, D.C., with all the things that's going on in it.
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so I, I yes. have to say, when you say words of evil, question number one, it's the United States indeed, because we were founded on biblical yes, we were. foundation. Yes, we, we were. Yes, we were. Turned away. All the other countries <coughs> are pagan and lost and what have you. Yep. But the United States was founded on Judeo-Christian values, which we That's have right. turned our back judgment on the United States should be pretty darn hard because <laughs> we have uh, gone so far away from what it was founded on. Um, so we have accountability because we try to save the world by sending missionaries all over the world. <laughs> and now it's kind of sad because those countries are sending missionaries here because we are so far from God. And we need them here. <laughs> desperately <clears throat> yeah it's uh, I was sharing with a friend well a couple weeks ago and I said you know if we've ever prayed I'll tell you we better be serious in prayer pray like you've never prayed before <laughs> Rebecca my Bible study that I did today uh huh Wow. But according to the study, people who identified as being no religion went from 16% in 2007 to 29% in 2021. Ooh. Wow. Huge difference. Huge difference. How does sin in others affect us? Or doesn't it? How does sin in others affect us? Does it affect you when somebody sins? It should. You should be very concerned about it. Yeah. I think you become desensitized. I think you do too. Did you hear what Mary Lou said? People become desensitized very quickly and some people don't want to get involved in it they don't want to they want to just stay away and just let let them do let them do their thing and um, this this is the this is this question here is how can we resist the influence of the world around us How can we resist the influence of the world around us? We do what? Amen. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. You got it. You got it. That's so true. Well, we're going to get ready here to start our lesson tonight.
And are we ready to record? Let's go. Okay. We're in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And as we begin tonight's study on Pergamum, Pergamum is the third church of the seven churches that Jesus was addressing. <clears throat> he was having John, <clears throat> excuse me, pen his letters. So we have looked at the church in Ephesus. Remember that? Pastor taught on that a couple weeks ago. Last week we looked at Smyrna. And Smyrna, if you remember, was one of the churches that had no condemnation. Now Ephesus was condemned for their lost of their first love, okay? But Smyrna does not. <clears throat> so Jesus wrote uh, to these seven churches, there was one other church that we'll eventually get to that had no condemnation, and that was Philadelphia. So two of the seven churches had no condemnation. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be absolutely wonderful? So, as we go into this lesson tonight, we're only going to be talking about verses 12 and 13. There's so much information in there. Um, and we're going, to read, we're going to read all the 12 through 17 verses to begin with, okay? So starting in verse 12, to the church in Pergamum, Pergamum, uh, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. <coughs> Excuse me. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise... I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Number 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. We're going to give a little bit of the background of uh, the church in Pergamum, and then we'll go into the actual two verses themselves and study those. So in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, there are letters by Jesus that John had penned, which were written to each one of the churches. Now, we, we had maps earlier, and you'll see that these seven churches are in kind of an upside-down U-shape. We started with Ephesus, and then you go a few miles, and you get to Smyrna, and you go another few miles, and you get to, you get to Pergamum, and you go again, and you get to Thyatira, 
then you kind of go to the east and you come back down from the other churches. So they were all fairly close to each other. Well, these messages were directly given to these specific churches because of the very specific issues that they had at that time. The letters describe not only a single church in history, but it describes a kind of a church that exists through all the history of the churches. So what does that tell us? What's happened in those churches and what Jesus is writing to those churches about also heads for the churches today. In other words, the churches today can learn from studying the seven churches in the book of Revelation and what's going on. So Pergamum or Pergamus, either one is a correct pronunciation of the city. It's a city in the Roman province of Asia, in the west of what is now the Asiatic Turkey. Okay, so it's in what is Turkey today. It occupied a commanding position near the seaward end of the valley of the Caicos River. It was probably the site of a settlement for a, from a very early date. In other words, it was there for a long, long time. Pergamum was one of the most prominent cities of Asia, and it was located in the western part of Asia Minor, and it was about 40 to 45 miles northeast. If you took the road out of Smyrna, you'd go about 40, 45 miles northeast, and you'd be in Pergamum. It was a city whose name meant citadel or fortress. And we'll get into that a little bit later on, why it was called that. Because the city itself, okay, it was located on a hill. Now imagine yourself driving down the highway, and you're looking out the window, and all at once you see this range of a hill off in the distance. But the hill didn't come up to a peak, so to speak, but it came up a thousand feet, which is quite a ways, and it kind of had a flat surface on it. That's where the city of Pergamum was built. It was on a huge hill that rose a thousand feet in the air, and it had a flat surface on it. So from Pergamum, you could see the Mediterranean or the Aegean Sea, and that was about 10 to 15 miles in the distance. The city became a Roman province around 130 BC, and like Smyrna, there were people who participated in and they encouraged the worship of the Roman emperor. Pergamum was also known for its civilization and for learning. It was noted for its pottery, for its tapestries and parchments. It had a library with some 200,000 volumes in it. It was huge and was second only to that of Alexandria's. It had been the seat of government for some 400 years before this letter of the Lord to the church. It was at Pergamum that the headquarters of the Roman proconsul was located. The first temple of the imperial cult was built there in 29 AD, and that was in honor of Rome and Augustus Caesar. The city thus boasted a religious primacy. In other words, 
they had temples to several. Uh, Augustus Caesar was one of the, the bigger ones, but they had all kinds of temples built on this level hill. And, and they, they worshiped these. There was all kinds of temple worship going on these. There's about six or seven uh, temples of, of gods, you might say, that they were worshiping. So they were real big in false worship. Ephesus, in the province of Ephesus, Ephesus was a commercial center. Pergamum was not. It was not a huge commercial center. Pergamum was a very wealthy city, and it was a center of emperor worship with many temples. Like I said, it was devoted to idolatry. Very, very strong in idolatry. This was the place where Satan's throne is that we read in verse 13 in chapter 2. It was the first town of Asia to build a temple in honor of a living Roman emperor, Caesar, Augustus Caesar. The most spectacular part of the city was that on the height of this hill, on its terraced upper division, there was all kinds, it was that main part of the upper hill was temples, all different kinds of idolatry going on, uh, Satan worship, the whole business. The great altar of Zeus jutted out over a cliff in the mountain on this hill like a throne. And perhaps that brings to mind the Lord's words when he said, you know where Satan's throne is. The God of healing and his priests and priestesses were also headquartered at Pergamum. Their symbol was a serpent standing for the healing powers which came through the serpent, which the members of the cult were involved in. Remember this sign of this serpent that we still see today when it comes to medical emblems and so on? That came from Pergamum years and years and years ago, and it carried down through the years. But that's where it began, was in Pergamum. So when you see this, we know where it came from. Perhaps people, they, they would come there, well, not perhaps, but they would come there when they didn't feel well, and they'd come to this temple and look at this serpent, and they would believe then that they would get well. And I sometimes think, why did this follow through to today? Why do we, why do we use this serpent today? <laughs> but that's where it originated at. So two things especially stand out about Pergamum. From this town came a new form of writing material. Do we all know what papyri is? It was a, a fairly thin piece of material that back then they would write on this, but there was a major problem. <clears throat> After so long, this papyri would dry out and it would crumble. So they had no records left. It would just disintegrate. So the people there in, Perg in Pergamum, they were known. Now they took hides of animals, somehow cured them, and they started being able to write on these which gave them now a permanent thing for them to write on. So the city was known 
and it was called parchments. In fact, the word Pergamum itself means parchment. That's where the word parchment comes from, is the city of Pergamum. So, <clears throat> this parchment then was a definite improvement on the papyri that could easily crumble with age. The city was a university town. Remember we, I had mentioned that they had over 200,000 volumes? It was the second leading library of the ancient world. Today, where Pergamum used to stand, there is a city called Bergma. And it has a Christian testimony. It has a church there. It has a Christian church there, believe it or not. And the church may depict the history of the church from the time of Constantine until the rise of the papacy. Now, you've got to remember, the Roman emperor, Augustus Caesar, was highly looked at. He was highly honored. They worshipped him. Okay? The whole Roman church kind of hinges back on this era. Okay? It kind of just follows right through down the line. So in the midst of this, there is a church now in this city. We do not know, uh, we don't know how the church at Pergamum really got started. We, there is no history of how the church in Pergamum got started. We don't know. It's thought that when Paul was preaching in Ephesus that the word spread because it wasn't very, there wasn't a lot of miles in between. And, but they're, they're not sure if that's really what happened. So as God, as uh, Jesus addresses this church, as with all the letters, he starts first by describing something of his character that relates to this church. So let's go into number one on the tonight's sheet, his character. <clears throat> Revelation 2, verse 12 again says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. We have also seen this reference to a sharp, double-edged sword in chapter 1, verse 16, which said, In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. The Lord is saying, I have a sword. It's a sharp one, and it's a two-edged one. The word sword is mentioned a total of nine times in the book of Revelation. Five times it was used as a single-edged sword, four times as a double-edged sword. In verse 16 of chapter 1, the sword is described as proceeding out of the mouth of Christ. The mouth, an instrument of speech, portrays this as the word of God. In Revelation 19, verse 13, Christ is called the word of God. And then in Revelation 19, verse 15, we have the statement about the sword that proceeds out of his mouth and by which he will slay the wicked. Interestingly, in the book of John, John 5, 24, it says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word 
and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged over from death to life. So in other words, the sword, it is a sword of judgment. The two-edged character, the two-edged, simply means it moves fast, it moves rapidly, and it's devastating in both directions. It cuts everywhere that it turns. The introduction then to Christ in this letter is not a happy one, it's not a promising one, it is a threatening one, a two-edged double sword. When he introduced himself to the church at Smyrna in verse 8, he said, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. That is encouraging because some of the people living in Pergamum were dying for the faith in Christ. Remember we mentioned Antipas? And he was writing them as the one who was resurrected, who had entered death for himself and for them. In the letter to the church at Ephesus, he introduces himself simply as the one who holds the seven leaders in his hand and moves among the churches. This church in Pergamum was in serious danger, and that danger was going to come from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Friends, Jesus will judge us and he has everything in control. The word of his mouth is what we really have to listen to. He is a judge. He is a loving judge, but he is our judge. He is the one who wields the sword. This particular sword is the sword of judgment that is used to cut down those who disobey the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says this, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The sword of his mouth then means his word, the word of God. The one thing needed in a worldly church today is the word of God. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> it's the word of God. The word of God is sharp. The word of God will cut through the most worldly and hardened heart. It will convict. It will convince the worldly of their sins and cut a sharp gash, separating the sinner from his sin. The sword is the symbol of the word of Christ which separates believers from condemnation and from conformity with the world. What will the word of God do? The word of God cuts deep, much like a double-edged. We're not using a single edge here. It's a double-edged sword used properly on a battlefield to reveal sin and bring spiritual healing and life to those who believe. The word of God will accomplish all that it is designed to do and intends to accomplish when used correctly. The word of God is all-powerful. 
and it can cut through a spiritual heart of stone. However, if the word of God is ignored, muzzled or imprisoned or not listened to or adhered to or not shared, it will do nothing for the person who is living in rebellion to the things of God. Very true, isn't it? The power of God's word will break every chain. Faith in Jesus will arise, lives will be changed, and there is no power on earth, and even the gates of hell will ever prevail. God's word. Wow. So important. Pergamum was a church that was compromising. We see a lot of that today, don't we? Compromising. Pergamum was a church made up mainly of Gentiles, primarily who had been converted out of paganism. They had, not, they had no doubt been converted to Christ, and there was some great transformation, but times have changed and they have now gone back and picked up some of their pagan habits. Pergamum had a church that was married to the world. They were in compromise with the world, but again, it is the word of Christ which transforms us from the world. At Pergamum, the church faced the sword of the government. In Roman times, the Roman proconsuls were divided into two, into two categories. Those who had the power to bear the sword and those who did not have that power. It was just the two. A proconsul then had the authority to bear the sword. They had the power to take a life. He could take life on the spot if he so chose. The proconsul at Pergamum had the power of the sword. This church at Pergamum needed to see this because it was going through a stage of martyrdom. Friends, there are martyrs, many martyrs today. We live in a country that, and I'm, I'm saying this on my own, we don't see it and we don't feel it. It could come to the United States very easily. The church could become persecuted, as we've never seen it persecuted. But I can tell you, this church at Pergamum, Pergamum needed to see this because it was going through this stage. These Roman rulers, if they didn't like what you did, they could take your life with not really even a good excuse. They could just, that's it, you're done. So they had already lost one from their midst. Remember Antipas? He was a faithful witness, but he was put to death. What Jesus is saying here is that there is one standing over the church who bears the ultimate sword. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. So we see here that the, the Pergamum church 
they had people in that church that was drifting away. Very dangerous ground to be on when you start drifting away. There were many forms of pagan worship. There were pagan cults being worshipped there. The worship of the Roman emperor was so big, in fact, that this was the first city in ancient Roman world to build a temple to Caesar. So there was a temple to worship Caesar. It was built in 29 AD, right about the time of the flourishing of the ministry of Jesus. The emperor worship had reached the point of cultic form. He was no longer seen as a political or military leader, but he was seen as a god. That's how strong the worship was of the Roman emperor. He was seen as a god. And in this city, they built the first temple there to Caesar. More temples were built as the years went by, and so the city had perhaps several temples of worship for Caesar. There just wasn't the one. It became then the capital of Caesar worship. The city was more given over to that than any other city in ancient Roman territory. They had developed along with Caesar worship, of course, all of these other pagan forms of worship. But as long as you worshiped Caesar, you could worship somebody else too. So they had multiple things, but Caesar was the highest one to worship in his love. If you worshiped him, then it was okay to worship this one and this one and this one and this one because there was multiple ones. What made it tough for the Christians was they didn't worship Caesar at all. Those Christians that stuck with, with Jesus, with God. They worshiped Christ and him alone and refused on one day a year. It took one day a year when you had to burn incense to Caesar. To, and if they did not do this, they would lose their citizenship, their citizenry in, in, in the city. They were no longer citizens there. This would have been intensified in Pergamum because it was the capital city for Caesar worship. And probably it was required more than just one day a year. And that is what part precipitates the fatality that occurs in this city to one of the members of the church, which we'll see at the end of verse 13, speaking of Anipas. The two-edged sword not only stands for the Lord's authority over government, but it stands for his authority over the church. And he is prepared to use it on the church. Verse 16 says, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So unless they deal with the problem that is in their midst, he himself will cut the problem out. We see the Lord represented to us as having a sword. We confess once more that the government is upon his shoulders. That is the ultimate authority. This may mean something more to Christians who live in an adverse political environment. Let's take for an example, we don't see it, like I said, we don't see it here in the United States. Think of the Christians in China, Russia, Iraq, whatever, overseas. Okay? Think of those in parts of that world 
or elsewhere where the church is being persecuted as this world word would come. So I, I don't think we really realize the depth of how much persecution is actually going on. We hear about it a little bit here and there. But if you get into the book of Revelation, it talks about the martyrs under the altar. There are thousands, folks, being persecuted in countries that we never, ever hear about. And it was happening in the city of Pergamum. So, to him who has the two-edged sword, to him who stands above the power of government and presidents and prime ministers, to him to whom ultimate responsibility is given, he has the sword. Christ then gives a commendation to this church. That's number two on your, uh, your study sheet. Revelation 2, verse 13. <clears throat> it says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Again, as in each of the letters, we have this statement made about our knowledge of our affairs. This reputation is not without significance. Here the Lord assures them that he knows of their steadfastness in the midst of Satan's headquarters or dominion. So just what is Satan's throne? What are we talking about? What is meant here? Well, it could refer to the emperor worship, which was set up there, the whole worship of Caesar, which flows then, it, was, it went from Pergamum, it went throughout the whole city and throughout that whole area. Or you could talk about Zeus. You could refer to, to the altar to Zeus. Zeus was the sort of a head of the pantheon, the supreme god. And one of the wonders of the world, this magnificent altar to Zeus was the largest, most famous altar in the world. It was shaped like a huge throne. So remember back in the verses, it says something like about the throne? That's where it came from. It looked like a throne, and it was set on the Acropolis. The Acropolis means the highest place. Remember, this city was built up a 1,000 feet up on the hill. They would always put their worship point at the heights in ancient times, and so they had this, this famous throne, as it were, and, or it was the altar to Zeus. Perhaps, perhaps, they aren't sure, but they're leaning very strong, all commentaries that I dug into, that it was the throne, of, or it was the uh, uh, Zeus's, the, the throne that they're referring to is of Zeus. So satanic activity was rampant here. It was spreading to all parts of the world because of the extreme amount of pagan idolatry and emperor worship carried on in this city. 
where you dwell in the Greek is this. It's Kato IQ. From Kata means down, or Q means to dwell. So it means to settle down, to dwell permanently, to be at home. Another word group used of believers is the Greek parakal group, to be a stranger or a sojourner in a place or a visitor. We are never to be at home in this world in the same way that unbelievers are. 1 Peter 2, verse 11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. This church is commended, first of all, for having an unbreakable grip on Christ and hell's headquarters. That is what Pergamum really is. Satan's throne where he dwells, where Satan dwells. The word which says, you hold fast my name, is the word used in chapter 2, verse 1, where the Lord holds the stars, the leaders of the churches, in his hand. He holds them so tightly in his hand that nothing can break that grip. Nothing can pluck anything out of his grasp. He has hold of us. Here is a body of people who in the midst of a very tough time really has hold of him. You hold fast my name in that place where Satan dwells, Jesus is telling him. Pergamum was a frightening place to be a Christian. It was the headquarters of the heathen religion. It was therefore fitting that Satan would dwell there. Even more than that, it was the place of the Roman government authority where the power to execute the Christians could be handed down. It was a place, therefore, where Satan dwelled. These Christians are called persons who dwell there. It says, I know where you dwell. Jesus is saying that. He's telling them that. There was no word to this church that they were suddenly going to be vaporized out of the situation at Pergamum. They had to dwell there to have to live where Satan lives. Jesus says, I know where you dwell. The Lord says, you have an unbreakable grip on me in the midst of that. You have an unshaken loyalty in the midst of martyrdom. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my martyr, being killed, you stood firm. So he is really commending the Pergamum church that they were hanging on to Jesus. They were strong with Jesus. There was a few, though, in that church that was drifting away. So the early believers knew exactly what it meant to become a follower of Christ. It meant the commitment of all they were and had. It meant the possibility of death. Pergamum was a church without the benefits of any locks or laws, a church put to the test. Anipus killed there, my martyr. We don't know exactly how he was killed. Church tradition, perhaps legend, says that he was put in a bowl and roasted, but that is not known for sure. What we do know is, is that he did not have a choice. He was put to death because of his faith in Christ. Whatever the manner of his death, it was a horrible death. These Christians had to go through that in the middle of all that, in the middle of the powerful work of Satan, was a little church. 
And it says, Jesus says, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Oh, friends, if he could say that about the church today. You did not deny my faith. That is the commendation he gave to the Pergamum church. You hold fast my name. My name always means who I am, person, and work. In other words, you have been faithful to me, Jesus is saying. He is talking about personal faithfulness to him. And then he says, you did, deny, you did not deny my faith. <clears throat> you did not deny my truth, my gospel, the message of salvation. So Jesus is really commending them here that he's you know, saying, hey, you hung on to me. You stuck with me. You are mine. He said, you never denied who I was and never denied your faith in my gospel, my truth. You never deviated in your theology and never de deviated in your fidelity. You believed the truth and you sustained that truth and you stayed true, you did not compromise. The courage of their faith is evident. They stood boldly for Christ. They were not ashamed of his testimony even in the place where Satan's throne is, it was not easy. Back to verse 13, you held fast my name, Jesus said. You hold it right now. You have not denied me. You don't deny it now, even in the days of Anipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. We do not know who he was. There's very little said about him in the scripture. Maybe there are past... Could have been, maybe there, he was their pastor. We don't know. Uh, maybe one of their leaders. But Jesus said, my witness, my martyr, my faithful one. Notice the mys. Christianity is personal, friends. It is so personal. You didn't deny my name. You didn't deny my faith. That's your commitment to me. And then there is my witness, Anipas, my faithful one, that's my commitment to him. I belong to you, and you don't deny it. You belong to me, and I don't deny that either. So I am yours, and you are mine. The faithfulness of that little church should be a challenge to all of us, too. Pergamum, for the most part, was faithful. This is a letter which may be to a church like us, which has not undergone any persecution. We can only kind of look in the window and see what's really going on. We can't feel it, but it maybe makes us look a little bit harder at our desire to always have Christ get us out of our problems. To always see that just before we have to go through any trouble, he will come along with a rescue key and spring us loose. There have been God's people through the ages who have been called to go through even death for his name's sake and have not counted their lives as being unworthy of being laid on the altar for him. What a beautiful church, one holding fast in a tough time in the midst of satanic influence, a church that remained true to Christ's name, a church that was true to the faith, can we say the same 
about the church today? Where does the church today stand? Are we strong and faithful? Would we be willing to give our lives up like Anapis for him? That takes us through the commendation. Next week, we're going to continue in Revelation chapter 2. We'll go through verses 14 through 17, the rest of it. And we'll look at what some of the church people were involved in. This lesson was mainly one of God of Jesus commending the church. The next lesson won't be quite as rosy because there were some in the church that were drifting away from Jesus and he does have a condemnation for them and we'll be into that section next week. So read, study chapter 2 verses 14 through 17 for next week. And thank you for coming tonight.